0: A brief reminder before we begin this week's episode. We're participating in No Shave November, wherein instead of buying new shaving and grooming supplies and going to the barber or hairdresser, you instead donate the money you would have spent on such things to help fund cancer research and prevention, and just let your hair grow. A luxury many cancer patients do not have. You can find out more about No Shave November at the link in our description for this episode. November is upon us again, and that can only mean one thing, especially if you're an American. Thanksgiving. In the past, we've done quite a few episodes over the course of our five years on the topic of Thanksgiving. We've discussed pie and ale, salt and pottage, willow bark, iron rations, harvest festivals, and turducken. And we feel we should remind you, we still have yet to receive a chair pumple from anyone. As you can see, there's been a fair amount of focus on the more food-oriented parts of the celebration. While it is definitely true that you'll see a greater selection of tasty comestibles during the holidays, it does leave out a few other important aspects of Thanksgiving, and holidays in general which are more than worth equal consideration. Because were it not for the contributions these other elements make to the end result, the plates full of turkey, potatoes both sweet and mashed, stuffing, biscuits, gravy, and strange little gray-green Brussels sprouts wouldn't even be around for you to enjoy in the first place. In fact, were it not for the contributions made by the various devices to be found in most kitchens we'd still be gnawing raw meat from the bone and wondering why we kept dying at 30 when we couldn't chew our food anymore. Kitchens are interesting, especially at holiday time, but even more so on a day-to-day basis. Within their walls, various mothers, occasional fathers, and a whole host of folks who fancy themselves chefs whether they deserve it or not, ply their trade in an effort to put food on the table for all who come into their domain. For that, we thank them, of course. But without the tools of their trade, where would they be? So that will be the focus of this month's episode. A close look at some of the tools to be found in the common kitchen. Tools that, for one reason or another, we appreciate the development of when it comes to the end product, but often overlook as a development worth celebrating in themselves. And while we can't cover everything all in one go... Or even over the course of an entire month, we will stop to take a look at some of the more significant developments that have come down to us throughout history, leading to the final, refined and perfected product sitting on your counter right now. Except, if the history of cookware and utensils has taught us anything about anything, it's that no kitchen tool is ever in its final, refined and perfected form. Throughout history, we're constantly changing, adapting, and adjusting the tools we use to prepare our meals to better fit not only the sorts of meals we produce and the people who produce them, but also the consumers of those meals. Even the process of cooking itself has been adapted over the years as mankind has changed from the earliest folks scrounging for survival around a barely guttering fire, to today's modern city-dweller ensconced in the gleaming white kitchen of marble and stainless steel. And so, we'll start off with the most basic and fundamental part of meal preparation of them all. To borrow a quote from one of our favorite TV chefs, Alton Brown, heat plus food equals cooking. And sure enough, when you look at the history of applying heat to food, it really hasn't changed that much for most of its history. It's only relatively recently that the majority of the world moved away from first principles and started jamming things into ovens instead. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. We're already in trouble. See, we used the word oven when we might have meant the word stove. The problem is, even though most folks use the two words interchangeably to mean the same thing, they actually mean two distinct things. The reason they get used one for the other is that by modern custom, any device that contains a stove is often called an oven. And vice versa. The dictionary is no real help here except to explain that the word stove indicates that the fuel used to produce the heat is burned or consumed in the stove itself. While an oven is just a chamber used for baking, heating, or drying. So we suppose that means a stove can be in an oven as an enclosed source of heat within the cooking chamber and an oven can be in a stove as an enclosed cooking chamber around which the source of heat is built. In either case, the oven itself is not the source of heat, merely the place set aside for the heat to do its work. To complicate matters more, you can certainly cook on a stove without the need for an oven. But an oven needs some source of heat in order to work. So you can see how it all got kind of confusing and people who weren't extremely pedantic decided one name was as good as the other and started calling stoves ovens and oven stoves. And let's move on now, shall we? Stoves make their own heat, ovens don't. There, just don't look at your oven stove too closely and we'll all be fine. Of course, the earliest source of heat by which cooking could have been done was the open fire. For some reason, Lots of folks like to imagine that the invention of cooking involves some random caveman dropping a piece of raw meat in a random fire, which they were already using for light and warmth. But we think there is a different and far more likely way the whole process was more or less discovered. And maybe we're slightly biased thanks to recent events this summer, but we bet it had more to do with wildfire than campfire. See early man was pretty opportunistic when it came to getting food. Sure, we can pretend they hunted for everything from the word go, but more realistically they went for whatever they could get with the least amount of effort. And that meant being willing to scavenge. Which meant taking advantage of what nature was just naturally done with by reason of age or infirmity, and making the best use of any carcasses left laying around. So we can take it as a pretty reasonable assumption much of the meat in early man's diet was from opportunistic feeding. Well, when a wildfire comes through, it comes through very quickly, as we all relearned this past summer. Animals don't always have the time or the ability to get out of the way and seek safety, which means they often die. And since they died in a fire, at least some portion of their anatomy will probably have been cooked by that same fire to one degree or another. We're not saying there were whole roast pigs just laying around for the taking, but certainly some portions of some pigs who died in the blaze will have been affected by the heat of the fire in a way that could be described as cooked. From there, it's just a matter of wondering how long it would have taken man to notice the difference between the two portions and work out what had happened and how to replicate it. After that, our caveman with a raw pork chop at the campfire looks less like, whoops, I dropped it, and more like, let's see if this works. And if you don't like that version of events, consider that fruits, vegetables, and tubers in the area of a hot, fast fire would have undergone a similar process. Possibly, learning to cook with fire was less of a random and more of an inevitable discovery for a creature with a brain capable of coming up with UG plus UG equals UG UG. And given mankind's fascination with fire, it wouldn't have been long before people started tinkering with the basic principles, poking at the fire with a stick and noticing the differences in heat and light when they did so, blowing on it and seeing the fire react and change, adding combustibles to keep the fire going, and so on. From this, it was just a matter of time before the campfire was being shaped and adjusted to suit the needs of the people using it. The act of roasting is said to be the most basic form of cookery. Take some meat, put it directly into the fire, remove it a few minutes later. You will then, if done properly, have achieved the two basic goals of cooking anything. Make it taste better and make it easier to digest. Done and done. So simple. So simple that humans have been doing it since before we even knew how to build a house to do it in before we even had pots and pans to do it on, by about two million years. Heck, agriculture hadn't even been developed yet, so Brussels sprouts weren't even a thing! What glorious times they were! There's an argument to be made that cooking helped make us what we are. Making food easier to digest by cooking it means that there are more nutrients available from any given food for us to use in growth and development. Our brains, in particular, could have used that extra energy and nutrition to develop from a people who can barely bang two rocks together into a people who form entire jazz ensembles. Brains with more energy and nutrients get bigger over time, and bigger brains mean smarter brains. Cooking may well have been the gateway to all the other technologies in the Civ tech tree. The original method of roasting, shoving meat into the fire, was tasty, yes, But that was mostly due to the fact that our bodies developed to like the taste of fat, because fat means extra resources and energy, and you certainly got a nice, greasy piece of meat from in-fire roasting. What you also got was a tough piece of meat, because roasting this way is too fast. There's no time for the meat to break down properly and tenderize as it overcooks rapidly. What was needed was a way to keep the meat out of the fire and let it cook properly over a longer period of time. And probably this did involve, initially, holding the meat above the fire by hand on the end of a stick or spear. Then all you had to worry about was turning it when one side was finished to let the other cook. Of course, then the side not facing the fire would be kind of cold, relatively speaking. But you could just turn it back to the fire and let it warm up again. But then the other, other side would get cold again, so you could turn it. And that's how burnt food was invented. Okay, maybe not. But it certainly was a problem that could have been solved by constantly turning the meat on a spit above or near to the fire, held in place by a couple of little piles of rock to keep things in place, which was the next big innovation in cooking. Cooking on a rotating spit kept the food from burning and ensured an even, thorough roast, provided the cook knew their business and could adjust both the fire and the food as needed to ensure proper doneness in the final product, which does. Sounds like the invention of the chef, too, or at least the dedicated designated cook. Someone who knew how to tell when the food was done cooking just the way everyone liked it by a combination of observation and technical know-how. When people finally got around to building shelters and houses of their own, the desire to take advantage of fire's benefits, heat, light, and hot food, meant that they built close to the fire for the most part. Until someone got the bright idea to maybe build a fire inside, instead of always outside. Naturally, when the fire moved inside, it did so with certain drawbacks. Lots of smoke, and a tendency to consume the entire structure if it got even a little bit out of hand. So they came up with ways to try to contain it. Namely, stacking unburnable stones around it to try to keep it in place. These rings of stone were the first hearths, and signified a change in the way fire and therefore cooking, was treated. Enclosing the fire to both control it and keep people safe from it became a thing, and opened up new avenues for cooking, which we'll hear about in later episodes. Meanwhile, the open fire was still the preferred way to cook. Sure, there were ways to enclose fire and make it portable, but real cooking, for many people, occurred on huge open fire pits, either dug into the ground or constructed out of stone or brick. The real cooking was roasting, as far as anyone was concerned. In fact, when it came to meal preparation, two broad methods had developed. On one hand, you could cook, often directly over or near the flame, roasting mostly. On the other hand was baking, which required a completely different approach. How baking first developed is even less clear than how roasting did. But its methods meant that cooking directly over an open flame was often disastrous, ending in burnt breads and sooty cakes. Neither of which had any particular redeeming value. So the methods of baking tended more toward the indirect heating method of the oven as opposed to the stove. However, both methods had one thing in common. They both required fuel in order to happen at all. In England, This meant trees, and indeed, many, many forests were severely reduced in size in order to keep English fires burning almost constantly. Some English households were known to have open fire pits as much as 11 feet long, and the fuel required to keep them roasting hot was incredible. In other parts of the world, the demand was no less insistent, but the supply was severely limited. China, for instance, had such a demand for such a scarce resource that... In contrast to the English roast, which took lots of time, attention, and fuel, they developed the wok and frying as their basic method of cooking. It used minimal fuel to extract maximum heat in the shortest amount of time, and developed because they had little other choice. Unfortunately, this dependence on fuel has its downside. As the English burned through their forests for their open cooking fires during the Middle Ages, They were setting themselves up for a fuel crisis. As you'll recall from our episode on sailing ships and steam from earlier this year, at the end of the Middle Ages they were on the cusp of new sailing technology that required great quantities of wood with which to build new ships and their masts. Access to fuel became restricted as the lumber was wanted elsewhere, not just for ships, but for housing and expanding population too. Finally, In the 18th century, Benjamin Thompson came along and, after making his fortune marrying well, abandoned his wife when it turned out he was born on the wrong side of the American Revolution for his tastes, and he fled to England. While there, he became appalled at the English tradition of open flame cooking fires in every household and declared that the loss of heat and waste of fuel in these kitchens is incredible. He thought, since the English focused on roasting meat almost exclusively, they had entirely lost the art of making nutritious soups and broths, and that more efficient methods of cooking were preferable overall. Because hearths were not enclosed, they led to a series of evils, including kitchens that were far too hot, with cooks frequently to be found in various states of undress in an effort to keep cool. There were cold drafts of air coming down chimneys that didn't vent properly and the homes were engulfed in noxious air produced by burning charcoal and wood. Kitchens and fires were so huge by the turn of the 19th century that equally huge inefficiencies were introduced. The progressively more massive, high chimneys that were built squandered fuel and created more smoke than they drew out and wasted heat that could be used for cooking instead of heating the ambient air. In short, it was a disaster both for the people and the country, And Thompson, who had recently been titled Count Rumford by King George III for his services in forming on the disposition of American troops to the British during the American Revolution, set about to fix the situation. What he came up with was the Rumford Range. To be clear, Rumford was a pioneer in the field of thermodynamics, whatever else he might have been. And the Rumford Fireplace, as it was also called, exhibited all he had learned to date in its design. The firebox was smaller and almost entirely enclosed, and there were more of them so that each could be controlled separately in accordance with the amount of heat needed to perform the desired job. The sides and interiors were angled in such a way that the brickwork used would reflect and direct heat back into the cooking space, meaning less was wasted making the room too hot to bear and went towards actually cooking the food being prepared while still keeping the kitchen sufficiently warm to be comfortable in winter. The chimney was built in closer to the top of the oven and angled in as it rose in order to draw smoke up the chimney more easily and out of the building rather than allowing it to linger inside, poisoning the occupants. With a quicker draw, less heat was lost up the chimney as well. All these improvements combined to make a Rumford range more fuel efficient, while also running hotter where it mattered cooking food. At a stroke, he had changed the way the world would prepare its meals. So of course, the public largely rejected it, and it mostly failed to catch on. Cooks are naturally hardbound traditionalists, and a recipe doesn't know from the latest improved methods. How do you roast a roast in an oven without access to a proper huge open flame? Forty years after Rumford's invention, People were still writing cookbooks that insisted the only true way to cook was with an open fire and a spit on which to turn the meat. Anything else was no better than baking. Which seems like a harsh sideways blow at the baker, but there you go. It just shows how differently the two operations were considered to be. Closed-off cooking ranges were too much like bread ovens, and those were things that baked instead of roasting. Rumford's range tried to bring together the traditions of roasting and baking into one device, and the British, and much of Europe, were having none of it. Those two things were to be kept as far apart as possible. So, what finally turned the trick for the modern oven? Well, in a way, it was coal. But in a completely other way, it was calamity. Remember that Britain had severely restricted the use of wood, reserving much of it for the building of ships, which meant regular fuel had to be found elsewhere? This led to the use of coal as a cooking and heating fuel in many British households. The other half of the trick was that people were really getting tired of accidentally burning themselves and their houses to the ground, particularly after the bakery fire that turned into the Great Fire of London in 1666. When houses and buildings were rebuilt following that, many of them were rebuilt in brick and converted to coal fuel, lessening the need for firewood, and changing the way people thought about cooking. See, coal needs to be constrained to burn well, so little middle baskets were built into the new fireplaces to hold the coal, which meant the fire had to be somewhat enclosed for the first time. Suddenly, the open fire wasn't the only way to go. Along with coal came the chimney, which Rumford would later improve, and gradually this all came together in what became the coal kitchener, or coal-fired stove. A completely enclosed box in which the coal could burn while food cooked above and around it. And it was all made of iron, which was good business for ironmongers, which explains Rumford's other problem with getting his stove to catch on. Since it was all brick, there was no incentive for the people who built new stoves, the ironmongers, to push people to install Rumford's invention. Coal-fire stoves were still grossly inefficient and murderously hot at the best of times, not to mention that construction was often haphazard and allowed the fumes from burning coal to escape into the room, which, you will be unsurprised to learn, is very bad when it comes to breathing and not dying. But, since the coal-fired stove could initially only be afforded by the rich, it soon became everyone's desire to have one in their kitchen too. And once fashion and fad takes over, rational decisions frequently go out the window. Coal stoves for everyone then. And then gas. Gas lighting and gas stoves came on the scene and suddenly the enclosed stove that did the work of both baking and cooking in one device was okay after all. Mostly because it was cheaper to have a gas stove than it was a coal one, but also because the new gas stoves were much easier to use day to day than the coal. See, coal is a messy, dirty fuel that required people using it to go through a laundry list of activities each day before they could even begin cooking. You had to remove all the fire irons and rake out the ashes of the previous cooking day. Then sift out the cinders and clean the flues you needed to degrease the stove itself and polish all the steel in order to keep things from rusting and gunking up, and then wash the stovetop itself before returning everything to where it had been before. Then, of course, you had to dust everything down all over again to remove the coal ash and dust that had settled on it while you were cleaning. And this had to happen every day in order to keep the stove in working order, cooking well, and prevent uncontrolled fire. By contrast gas was easy. You just turned it on and got to cooking. And after that, there was no going back. When electricity became the latest thing, electric ovens came along too. And when microwaves became a thing, microwave ovens... No, wait. Do not put that turkey in the microwave. Do not. What a terrible idea. When that turkey slides out of the oven, all crisp and moist and golden brown and delicious, don't forget Give thanks for a proper oven as well. Welcome to November and thank you for listening to this episode. We appreciate you taking the time to do so. We'd also appreciate it if you could see your way clear to donate to No Shave November. Any size donation is appreciated and goes to support cancer research and prevention. You can find more information at our donation link in the show notes. Usually, we'd ask you to support us on Patreon at this point and acknowledge our wonderful patrons there. But for November, we'd like to encourage you to instead support No Shave. We'll still be here in December if you'd like to support us then. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, who comes from a long line of bakers, and cooks. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I can't remember ever cooking food to impress a woman. The idea is quite cheesy and sort of makes my skin crawl. But I sometimes make a special effort to impress my cats.